Gavaldik. Lots to cover. Not so much time. So let us get going. This week's parsha is Parshas Vayakel. Second to last parsha in Sefer Shemos in the book of Shemos. Uh, the primary discussion of our parsha is going to concern the Mishkan and how the word Vayakel literally means gathered together. Klai Yisrael naturally came together to listen to the word of Moshe about the Mishkan coming back. But before we get into the Mishkan, there's a few short psukim. So let us begin. The parsha starts with Parak Lamed Hay, chapter 35, Pasuk Aleph, number one. Here we go. Vayakhel Maisha. And it was gathered together for Moshe. Okay? That's how Rashi wants us to translate this. Instead of saying Moshe gathered us together, Rashi points out that Vayakhel Moshe means people gathered around him. They wanted to hear. He didn't need to push us to come listen. Now remember, we're about to talk about the Mishkan, which is going to be rebuilt to house the Shekhinah, to house the Divine Presence, following the sin of the calf, following the Chet Ego. So we're going to have a fascinating discussion shortly about what exactly the Mishkan represented. As we're going to learn, the women of Klal Yisrael viewed the Mishkan as representing something phenomenal, while the men of Klal Yisrael actually were not initially interested in the Mishkan because they viewed it as a spiritual compromise to what we had previously. But we'll get into that in Mirz Hashem. So Klal Yisrael gathers together in front of Maisha, and Maisha Rabbeinu tells them, says to the Jewish people, these are the words that Hashem has commanded that we should do. Okay, now, before we get to the Mishkan, we talk about Shabbos. And Rashi is going to point out, Moshe wants to start by talking about Shabbos to let us know that as great as the Mishkan is, the Mishkan is not allowed to be built on Shabbos. Okay, Shabbos comes first. For six days, you should put in the work. Okay, now you hear it's a mitzvah to work. All right? It's fascinating. It's a mitzvah to work. Sheish Yom says in the Torah, six days you should work. Uvayom Ashvi, and on the seventh day, Shabbos, Yihiyalachem Kodesh, it's a holy day for you. Shabbos Shabboson Lashem, it is a day of rest for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Kol Ha'oseh anybody who performs work on Shabbos, most you must should surely die. Meaning there is a death penalty for Chil Shabbos, and we're going to touch on this as well. Let's get into this Pasuk before we get... Uh, oh, you know what? Let's read one more Pasuk that's t- that touches on Shabbos. Then it says, don't do any work, but then there's all of a sudden verse 3. What does verse 3 say? You're not allowed to light a fire on Shabbos. Yeah, this is interesting. It says, don't do any work. And then it singles out fire. Not to light a fire on Shabbos. Now this is interesting because there's 39 malachos. There's 39 forbidden labors of Shabbos. Lighting a fire is one of them. Why we mention only lighting a fire? What's unique about... Isn't it included... First of all, isn't it included in the previous Pasuk of don't do any work? And if you're going to say it's not, well, why is it different than anything else? So let's focus on these sukkim for now. The Pasuk says, again, don't work on Shabbos, and then it says, don't kindle a flame on the Shabbos day. 
So the Gemara in Mesechta Sanhedrin, in Tractate Sanhedrin, on Daflamet Hayamet Beis 35b, the Gemara brings a machlokas as to why the Torah specifically is singling out fire. Now get ready for a Gemara here. Here we go. Rabbi Yossi says, the reason why we're singling out fire is to teach us that fire is not as severe of a transgression as the other malachos. Okay? It says, if you transgress Shabbos, there's a death penalty, but not by a fire. If you light a fire on Shabbos, it's only a, it's only a transgression. Lo sevaruesh, don't do it. But it's not as severe of a transgression as the other ones. That's the opinion of Rabbi Yossi. Rabbi Nussin argues, and Rabbi Nussin says that, no, the fact that we're singling out fire is arbitrary. It could have singled out any of them. But it's important to single out one to let us know that you don't need to transgress all 39 in order to, for there to be a chi of misa. It's even each transgression separately brings a chi of misa. So the Torah just wants to mention, says Reb Nassim, one transgression to let us know that when we said originally don't do work, it doesn't mean that you have to transgress all 39. It means individually. I, why'd you pick fire? It's arbitrary. Why'd you pick any other one? Okay. That's the dispute in the Gemara. Now listen to this. Rabbi Yenison Ibshitz. This is a beautiful, beautiful idea. So much to learn from this. Rabbi Yenison Ibshitz asks. He says, according to the first reason, it makes sense why we're singling out fire because fire is different. We're learning a specific halacha to fire. There's no chi of misa. It's only a negative transgression. But according to Rabbi Nassim, that the, this halacha applies to all of the primary prohibited labors on Shabbos, everything has a rhyme and a reason. Why are you picking on fire? So listen to what Rabbi Yenison Ibshit says. He says, beautiful, Shabbos is a Jew's testimony that Hashem made the world, owns the world, continues to run the world. He manufactured it and it's his. That is Shabbos. That is why every single one of us, when we make Kiddush on Friday night, everybody stands by the paragraph of Vayichulu HaShemayim Baha'aretz V'cholzevam God made the world. There's different customs whether you stand or sit during the blessings of Kiddush on Friday night. But everybody stands by Vayichulu because it's testimony. And when you give testimony, you stand up. So Shabbos is commemorating my Sabaratius. Okay? Shabbos is commemorating my Sabaratius. Now, what does it have to do with us? It has everything to do with us. You know why? Because fire doesn't come from the six days of creation. Rabbi Yenison Ibshitz teaches us fire was created on Matzei Shabbos. The Medrash tells us fire is not really a physical entity, it's a spiritual entity that we can feel physically. It kind of represents. Ruchnius, where fire teaches me there's something in this world that goes up. You can't hold it. You can't hold fire by itself. It needs to be connected to something else, but you can certainly feel it. And therefore, says Rebbeinus and Ibshitz, since fire wasn't created until Matzei Shabbos, which is why we only make a Bore Meorei Ha'esh when you make Abdullah on Matzei Shabbos. If you ever make Abdullah any other time besides for Saturday night, you do not make a Ha'esh. 
I would think it's not included in commemorating my Sabratius because it doesn't come from the seven days of creation. It came afterwards. Says Rabbi Yenison, the Torah is teaching us, according to Rav Nussin, that fire is no different than anything else. Fire, even though it's not Zecher the my Sabratius, even though it's not reminding us of the six days of creation, it's still severe, according to Rav Nussin. Why? Doesn't come to six days of creation, says Rav Nassim, the reason is because Shabbos doesn't only represent the creation of the world, Shabbos is also Zecher Liyetzias Mitzrayim. It also reminds us of our exodus, the time that we left Mitzrayim. We left Mitzrayim on a Shabbos. And, and the only reason why how we know that Hashem made the world is from when the Torah was given after we left Mitzrayim. Okay? So, therefore, says Rebbe Anderson Ibshitz, that's even in Rav Nassim who says... That, oh, it's just letting us know individually, why would I single out fire? Because fire is the most novel idea. Because it's teaching me an added element, not only of the creation of the world, but that Shabbos commemorates even Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Whenever the Shekhinah reveals itself to us in this world, we find fire there. And that's, that, I mean, that's really the idea. Because... Fire is something that, it's like, the, it's like the highest capability that a human can fathom about something not really being tangible, but still existing. So whenever HaKadosh Baruch Hu needs to bring the human mind around to that concept, right? Nowadays, by the way, with technology, it's so much easier to be aware, you know? Yeah, like any radio waves, radio, uh, so many things that we... Are, have now grown accustomed and are used to that we know exist and can't be seen, right? That's, uh, but uh, absolutely, that's what the fire here, uh, very often you'll find by the Shekhinah revealing itself, it's, it's always uh, connected to fire. Now, what's unique about Shabbos in particular? So what's unique to Shabbos in particular is that, um, you know, Shabbos, the Navi tells us, is the Jewish nation's way of showing, the, of showing that we are married to Hashem. I will be betrothed to God forever. Right? That's a pasuk, which means we're, we're, so to speak, married to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Okay? And uh, the Chafetz Chaim points out the Gemara where Hashem tells Moshe, I have a matana tova, I've got a great gift in my storehouse. And please give it to the Jewish people. And it's called Shabbos. Shabbos is Hashem's gift to show us that our marriage has taken place with Him. So as long as we wear this, as long as we wear this gift, it's a sign our relationship continues. How do you know if somebody, if somebody gets divorced? How do you know if somebody's engagement is broken? You know how you tell? When their ring is off. They take off their wedding band. That's symbolic of the marriage ending. It's symbolic of the agreement to get married ending. And Shabbos, the sages teach us, is this wedding band or this engagement ring where the more we hold on to Shabbos, the more no matter where we are, we could be across the world from Hashem. We could be even, God forbid to say this, but we'll say it, right? Sinning as much, you know, doing all these sins. But a person who has Shabbos, is at least showing, yeah, you know what, we may be having marital issues or whatever it is, you know, but we're still married. We're still there. Okay. 
Um, now here's a very, very powerful idea. It's a very powerful idea. The last word in Pasuk Bays says, you must. Transgression of Shabbos, what's the penalty we'll call it? You must. A person who transgresses Shabbos, they were warned, there's witnesses, they knew all about it, they not, and they still continue to not want that marriage. It says, you must, death penalty. Rabbi Akiva Tetz asks a question. Now, I kicked myself and I never asked, you know, that I never thought of this. But that's, that's how you know it was a good speech. Right? He says like this. The sages tell us, the Jewish nation never carries out, or rarely ever would carry out, a Bezdin, a high court, would rarely ever carry out a death penalty. The Gemara says, according to, I believe it's the opinion of Rabbi Akiva, if there was a court that brought death to a single death through the court every 70 years, they were called a killing Bezdin. And you shouldn't use them. Go somewhere else. Because you can always find a way to wiggle out and not bring the death penalty to somebody else. Okay? That's the Gemara says. This is Gemara. So Rabbi Akiva Tatz asks, so then why does the Torah say so many times, if you murder somebody, Misa. You transgress Shabbos, Misa. You do this, Misa. If it never happens anyway, and a Jewish court is supposed to look for ways to wiggle out of it, why are you doing this? Why are you even writing it? It never happened. Basic question. And he brought out a beautiful idea. I forget who he quoted. He said that whenever the Torah writes Yumas, it doesn't mean that Hashem wants us to be killed. A person should be taken away from the world. No. You know what? What is death? Death is a separation of something from its source. Something from where it was. It's a separation. When the Torah writes, you must, it's letting me know the severity of what I'm doing. It's not the, the, it's telling me how careful I need to be because of what's happening. We're in a marriage with Hashem. I'm in a relationship with Hashem. This is my source of spiritual life. If the Torah says, you must, that means this particular mitzvah is something that if I don't follow, what a loss I have. Not that anything's going to happen to me. Right? We're not a, we, everybody know we're, the Jewish nation is not a nation, uh, we don't uh, chop people's hands off and noses off, you know, like could happen amongst others. It's not the way it works. So then why are these expressions being given? To let us know how deep and important the relationship is and that it could be built with this particular mitzvah. And if we don't, we're separating ourselves from that opportunity with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That's why it's, it uses the word here of yumas. Okay. Is that spiritual That's, death? It, you could call it spiritual death, except the, the, the issue I have with the word death for us Americans is we view death as an end to something. I would prefer to call it a spiritual fainting. Of the camp. Yeah. Yeah. So we had to go outside, and so we were separated, but that's physically, and it was spiritual, but something spiritual, I mean, how do we know 
what kind of separation and how long that separation is. We don't know. It, it, so we know until tshuva. That's it. Once a person does tshuva, they're back. No problem. Okay. Once you do tshuva, you're good. That's why I want to call it a spiritual fainting. Just, you know, it's like uh, Rabbi Shleim of Freifeld, Zecharna Levracha, Zeshiva and Shayashiv. So There's a cute little uh, quip that I saw in his biography, um, which they were explaining like how he viewed things. One of his students was supposed to drive him to a wedding or something. And he gets into the car and the student tried turning on the car and it wouldn't start. So it's going, it's going. He looks at him sheepishly and he says, Rebbe, my car died. And he looks at his student and he says, Yankul, don't you ever say that. Your car fainted. It didn't die. Don't worry, we'll get a jump. We'll get a jump. Relax. Right? As people view spiritual death, to me, if I were to hear those words, seems to be like, okay, so now I'm done. In, in Yiddishkeit, we don't really have that. We have a loss that with tshuva could be regained. Like you faint, you come back. You know what I mean? It's... That's, that's Sheva Yipo Tzadik Vakam. King Solomon tells us. Shlom Melech says, What's a Tzadik? You know what a righteous person is? Someone who sins. And sins. And sins. And sins and sins and sins. But Vakam gets back up every time. I sinned. And then I stand up. And I have a lapel. And I, just, I brush it off. And I keep going. I keep showing Hashem. I want to be in a relationship with Him. Such a person is a Tzadik. Right? So, yeah. Over here... It's still a loss. You're still lost. That's something, you know, time is the one thing you can never regain. Isn't, you know, it is what it is. But with proper, you know, with, uh, with a proper commitment afterwards, you know, everything uh, can ultimately come around. Okay. Now, that's about Shabbos. So now Moshe, let's keep going. Moshe Rabbeinu now gathers everybody together and he's going to instruct them about all of the details that HaKadosh Baruch Hu told him uh, need to be in place in order for the Mishkan to be built. Let's get into this, okay? We're, gonna, we're about to enter a very detailed breakdown. Everything that was needed for the Mishkan. And the Torah tells us that the women, along with the men, came forward to donate, okay? Where do you see this? If you jump ahead to... Pasuk Chaf Beis, verse 22, which the next few verses just go through all the materials that are needed to be donated. What happens in verse 22, in Pasuk Chaf Beis, it says, anashim al anashim, the, 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 um, the, women, the men and the women came together. Kol Nadivlev, anybody who wanted to, uh, who, who had a heart's desire to give. Now, what was in the list, we'll find, if you keep reading the Pasuk, they brought chach, venezem, v'tabas, v'chumas. They were bringing all types of women's jewelry along with the copper that the women would use for their mirrors in order to put on their makeup and to beautify themselves. And... These, the, for, let's say particularly, and they donated this. The women donated their jewelry and they took their copper mirrors and they donated it and that was used for the kiar, for the washing station that the Kohen would use each morning to purify his hands and feet. Okay? Now listen to this medrash. This is amazing. The medrash tells us, the sages teach us that initially Moshe didn't want the mirrors from the women. He didn't, he didn't feel it was appropriate to use in the Mishkan. 
because he argued that the mirrors were a tool of vanity. It's vanity it's fit, it, when you're into your physicality. Okay? So what happened? Says the Medrash, HaKadosh Baruch Hu overruled him and ordered him to accept this copper. What does he say to him? So the Medrash, here's the words. The Medrash will say it in English. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, these are more precious to me than all other donations. Not only should you take it, this is going to be my favorite taking. It's going to be more precious than anything else. Okay, so Rashi, is, this is all from Rashi. Rashi is bothered. Rashi says, no, big deal. All right, you want to say take the mirrors, gazuntahit. But why all of a sudden is it more precious? What is it, why is it precious? So Rashi explains something amazing. Rashi says that when the Jews were enslaved in Mitzrayim, many of us, had been miyaish. Many of us had given up hope. They didn't feel Klal Yisrael would be able to continue. And they didn't, they, they, uh, a lot of the men who were out to work decided there's no reason whatsoever to have any children. Why, why, would, why would it bring children into the world to suffer? Okay? So... Um, the, uh, the measure says that the women didn't buy into this claim. And then when their husbands started giving up, they particularly went out and bought these mirrors to beautify themselves and they remained regal. They were the, the last standing, they were the, they were the group, the last standing, 50%, you know, it's a nice percentage. But they were the group that kept the hopes up for Claudius Roll, which means they took their mirrors and they, they dress themselves up as if they are the noble women, God's princesses. And they acted the part. And, uh, and they, they never gave up. And their husbands would come home all disheveled and all broken from a hard day labor. And these women would be dressed in a very noble way, put together. And they would say, no, you're making a mistake. I am representing who we are. You're not representing who we are. You're a Jew. You're God's. We are Klau Yisrael. And they would tell the men they're not allowed to give up hope. Never forget where you come from. Never forget that we're the children of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. They, the women did not allow the culture of Klal Yisrael to turn sour when everything else seemed, seemed uh, very bleak. There's no future. The women kept this dream alive. Now, it didn't... Did Miriam, did Mir, did Miriam do that? Wasn't she the one who initiated all this? Mir, Miriam uh, may have been a leader in it. But you're only a leader if you have followers. Good. Very good. Yeah, that's a good point, right? Miriam, that beautiful. Miriam, as the Medrash tells us, convinced her parents to get back together. And who knows, maybe the savior of Klal could come from her. And that was her prophecy. And Kachava, that's what happened when uh, Moshe Rabbeinu was born. That's right. People were giving up. And they went into despair. And, uh, and it was the, the Jewish women that didn't allow that to happen. Now, it doesn't end there. Because what happens now comes to our parsha. This is such a beautiful, beautiful uh, uh, example of how things come full circle. We sinned in parsha's kisisa, right? Last week's parsha, kisisa, the sin of the golden calf. This divine presence left, and we did teshuva, and Hashem says tells Moshe to instruct us to build the Mishkan, because in this Mishkan, that's where I'm going to bring my divine presence. Listen to this. The men said, we don't want a Mishkan. 
You know why? Because until now, a Mishkan wasn't needed. If we wouldn't have sinned with the ego, with the golden calf, we never needed a, a special place for the divine presence. The Shekhinah, the divine presence used to be around the entire camp. It didn't need a house. It was everywhere. But after the sin of the calf, God says, I can't just simply dwell amongst all the people. I need a special place where people come to me to find the divine presence. And that's going to be in the Mishkan. So to the men, the Mishkan did not represent a spiritual height. To the men, the Mishkan represented a spiritual compromise. It was a descent from the way things used to be. And they lost their enthusiasm and they, they were not really interested in contributing. Nobody likes contributing money to a cause that has no future. They were reluctant. And the men assumed that the women who withheld their jewelry by the golden calf, they weren't giving it away, right? They would also be reluctant for the building of the Mishkan. But this time, however, the men who readily gave to the golden calf all of a sudden they're withholding from the Mishkan. And the women who withheld from the golden calf, they're universally enthusiastic about giving to the Mishkan. They came forward and they said consistently with their nobility of Mitzrayim, don't worry about what was lost. Don't dwell on the negative of what was lost. Klaisar will bounce back and it's going to happen through this Mishkan. Meaning, the women ensured that the culture of despair never really took hold. And this was consistent with the Mishkan. That's what this Pasuk is teaching us here. It was consistent. This is what they did at that time of the building of the Mishkan. We look at the Mishkan. Wow, everybody's excited. The men just telling us, no. You have to get into the kishkas of the culture of Klaishol at the time. This, for a lot of people, particularly the men, who are getting a little too logical over here, okay, Particularly for the men, they were having a very tough time with this. You know what? We want, to, we want, but we don't want, what's it going to be? We're not so sure. And it was the women who came, kind of dragging their husbands this time, to, to, give, to, the, uh, to give to the Mishkan. A number of years ago in Shul, I, there's a, a, you know, just to, to share on this theme. Nothing, do, you know, just to, of what the women of Klai Yisrael were doing. And what they really were doing is, ensuring that things that were wrong didn't take hold, which this message is not unique to this situation. We know this happens at, you know, at various times as a people, as a person. Sometimes we come across tough, tough situations in our lives and we just give up to it. And we need the chizuk, we need the encouragement of somebody telling us, you know what, now you live in a plan B, that's fine. You can make the most out of a plan B too. You could grow spiritually. You could be with the Rabbani Shalalem. But you can't allow, what we have to learn from this, you can't allow things that are detrimental to just remain. The women could not allow the men to do this. No. It's not going to be like, oh, we're going to donate to the Mishkan, you know, as if, uh, no, we're not, we're not going to allow this. And they took over. So there's a, a few years ago we told over a story of uh, uh, it was a young boy. I don't, I don't know how how uh, old he was. Okay, You'll, we'll see soon. If I wanted to tell over in a way of like shock, I would only share at the end that this boy was Rabbi Yosef Daiv Halevi Salavechik, the Briskarov. 
but I'll tell you now anyway. So the Brisker Rav, when he was a young child, I would say he's 10 or 11 years old. His name was Rabbi Yosef Daiv. They called Yosef. He went to Cheder. Along, and by the way, he writes this in his Sefer. It's a wild story. Listen to this. He went to Cheder along with other boys in his town. And one day, two boys in his class got into a disagreement. It ended up escalating into a physical fight. And of course, the Malamed, the Rebbe, the teacher stepped in to break up the fight. But instead of listening to both sides and really finding out what happened, the Rebbe acted unfairly and he took the side of one boy he decided is correct. And the Rebbe decided that one of the, the boy named Mendel was the perpetrator. Mendel's the perpetrator. And he grabbed Mendel by the arm, he screamed at him, gave him a little patch as the class looked on. And this boy, Yosef, who went on to become the Briskarov, he ran up to his Rebbe and he gave his Rebbe Musser, he's 10 years old, in front of the whole class. And he says, how can you do that? You, I was there, you didn't see what happened. How can you take side in a machlokas when you don't know what happened? Why are you punishing one boy over the other? And I'll tell you why I think you are, he tells the Rebbe, because Mendel's a poor orphan with nobody to stand up for him, and this other boy's father pays you well because you're the malamid, and you're nervous about getting on his bad side. You're supposed to be teaching us Torah instead of transgressing Torah, and I'm out of here. And he ran home. Ten years old. He went straight to his house and he announced to his parents he's done with Cheder where the Rabbeim don't keep Torah. What he tells his parents. I'm not going to school where my Rabbeim don't keep Torah. His parents tried to calm him down. And there was only one school in town, one Malambit. <laughs> where else are you going? <laughs> There's no other options. So he didn't know. He says, I don't know. I'm not, go- I'm not learning Torah from that, from that uh, person. So without any other choice... Yosef Dov Halevi Salavechik's father began learning with him. He would take hours off of his work. He said, my kid's not going back to school. He's putting up a fuss. I can't get him to go back. So the father stayed home from work a few hours a day and he learned with him every day. Now listen to this. That's not even the story. Rav Yosef Dov Halevi Salavechik writes this. He said that a couple years later, he was at a lesson. He became very, very sick. And his condition got worse and worse. And his parents took him from doctor to doctor. They couldn't figure out what was going on. And it got to a point where he was laying in bed and they had to send all the Kohanim out of the room because he was, he was on the verge of death. They had to make sure there was no Kohanim uh, around. And then he, Yosef opens his eyes. And he says, he's right, he says, I opened my eyes and I asked them for a cup of water. I made a shahakol and I told everyone I'm going to be okay. And they said, what do you mean? So listen to what he tells them. He's now 12 or 13. I'm not sure how old he was now. It was a couple years later. He says, I just slipped away. Okay, so this is something you have to, you know, accept as it is. And he says, I started slipping, I started slipping away, but I noticed... Uh, I noticed Sender, the blacksmith, in the back of my room right here. Notice Sender in the room where he was laying. And he was davening to Hashem. And he said to Hashem, I forbid you to take this boy from the world 
Because if you do, who's going to stick up for my Mendel and Cheder? There's nobody else to stick up for my child. And then he looked at me, Sender looked at me, and he gave me a, a, he gave me a little wave as if I'm going to be okay. And I'm going to be fine. <laughs> is what he, is what this, what this young boy is telling them. And, you know, as we know now, he went, he's, this is the, the Heliga Briskarov, or Beis of Levi Salavechik. He personally wrote this story. And all of the Brisker Torah, the great brisk, you know, the, the, all the brisker Torah that we have today and much of the lumdus, the deep classes that we have on Gemara and Rambam in our yeshivas stem from this young boy who lived in defense of this orphan, okay? Now, there's a lot to take from this, obviously, to stand up for people who are, who are not, okay? But, but think about the mida that he used it wasn't just a mida of pity. I don't think that this this that the briskarov stood up for this child because he pitied this child. He stood up for this rav because you can't allow something that's anti Torah to exist. That's it. He wasn't at that young age. He already knew. I'm not going to let it exist, and that's what is happening here with the women of Klal Yisrael. They're not letting it exist. No, it's not going to happen, right? As a culture, on the male side, there was a little bit of giving up. And they said, no, 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 get that out of here. We're not going to be part of this. It's going to be very different. It's not the way it's going to be. We stood, they, they stood up and they ensured that um, they, they ensured it wouldn't go on. Okay, one last, uh, one last piece. We're already a, a little bit uh, over time, but we'll just uh, we'll share this. A, a beautiful idea. I won't be able to get into as far in depth as uh, we would have liked. But interestingly... You'd think that Moshe Rabbeinu should be the one to build the Mishkan. And Moshe actually thought that he's going to be the one who's in charge of it, except Hashem tells Moshe, no, it's actually going to be Bitzalel, who at the age of 13 is going to build the Mishkan. Okay, and that comes up in Pasuk Lamed in verse 30. You jump ahead a few Pesukim. So, so Moshe tells Klausel, instead of instructing me to be the one in charge of, of compiling the Mishkan, it's going to be Bitzalo, Ben Uri, Ben Chor, Lemate Yehuda. He's going to be filled with the spirit of Hashem, the spirit of Elikim. And, um, and, you know, what, what does this mean? What, what's Bitzalo doing here? What's his connection to the building of the Mishkan? This is very interesting. Rav Chaim Velazhner tells us, there's a whole background story of how he got around to this, but Rav Chaim Velazhner teaches us that Hashem, the Pasuk says, Hashem put a Ruach Aleikim, a spirit of God into Bitzalel, and Bitzalel knew Lachshov um, Machshavos, he knew how to think thoughts, okay, with the gold, the silver, and the copper, Right, so what does that mean? So Rav Chaim Velazhner explains to us that um, that when people donate to certain things, there's different levels of donation. Some people give because they have to. Some people have more lishma. B'tzalo had this spirit of Hashem guiding him, like the highest level of tzedakah. The people who were taka worthy, their tzedakah went to the kaddish kadashim. Right, people who are a little less worthy. So their tzedakah went to uh, 
you know, their tzedakah went to something else. Their tzedakah may have gone to something that was uh, a, a little less holy. Okay? But let's get into Betzalel himself. It needed holy thoughts, even to the point of which money went to which, which gold, went to which vessel, who donated it. Right? It needed holy kavanos. It, it should bother us that Betzalel was capable of this, and I'll tell you why. Betzalel is the son of Uri, the son of Chur, from the tribe of Yehuda. Now, you know who Chor was? Chor was the one killed when he tried stopping the Chetah Eagle. People came to Chor and to Aaron when Moshe was up in Shemayim. And they said, oh, we want to make an Eagle. And Chor said, what are you doing? Meshuggah. You can't do this. And they murdered Chor, Betzalel's grandfather, in favor of worshiping the Chetah Eagle. And now the Mishkan is the atonement for all the people who opposed his grandfather. So the question is, Betzalel is the one sitting here building the Mishkan to bring an atonement to the people who killed his grandfather. This thought, this emotion should have completely interfered with his ability to act and build in the Mishkan on behalf of Klal Yisrael. Okay? Because as we just said, the, Mish- the Medrash points out that the Mishkan had to be built with such a degree of purity that it was... The Mishkan was never destroyed because it was built with such high level of purity. Until today, it's just hidden away. You can't destroy something that is completely Kedusha. How did B'Tzalel attain such a high level? How did he pull this off? It's, it's, an incredible, uh, it's an incredible feat. So the answer is, and we'll, we'll end with this, Taka, the greatness of why Betzal at the age of 13 is the one who's able to build the Mishkan instead of Moshe. Okay, one of the hardest feelings we know to control is vengeance, is a little bit of, uh, a little bit of revenge. And Betzalel's building of the Mishkan with total, complete thoughts, not only of where the money came from, where it's going, but completely, Hashem, please do this, a complete atonement for all these Yidden who are desperate to rebuild their relationship with you. It was the very same, ready for this? Here's the cop. It was the very same Mida that his grandfather used to try to stop them. How can you build the Egel? I love you so much. I can't let you do this. My fellow Yidin, I can't let you do this. I care about you too much to a point where they killed him because he wouldn't, he wouldn't let them go ahead. It was that same Midah that he instilled in his grandson. That when it came time for a Mishkan to be rebuilt, Betzalel said, I love you so much, I'll do whatever it takes to help you. Both Betzalel and Chur, one unfortunately through dying, and one through building the Mishkan, are really portraying this Midah that runs in the family. This trait of, it's to be there for Yidin, be there for Klal Yisrael. It's not about me. It's about, it's about what we could do on your behalf. In the situation of his grandfather, it was to stop Klal Yisrael from sitting with the calf. In the situation of Betzalel, it was to bring back the Mishkan. That was the greatness that Betzalel showed and why he was worthy to be someone building of the Mishkan. Okay, we'll hold it here for now. And if anybody has any thoughts or points they'd like to share, please do so.